Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Food. I'm your moderator, and my name is Valerie St. Rossi. Today, I'm very pleased to be speaking with Jeff Kohler about his book, Where the Wild Coffee Grows, the untold story of coffee from the cloud forests of Ethiopia to your cup. It was published by Bloomsbury in 2017. Jeff, welcome to New Books in Food. Thanks. The first question... I have is, is life possible without coffee? <laughs> not for me. <laughs> um, and and not for, you know, a lot of people, um, as I can write in the book, I mean, there's really no other substance that kind of holds sway over the human experience like coffee, you know. Uh, I, I quote somebody in the book who said, essentially, you know, if it's not indispensable to man's happiness, then it certainly contributes a, a good deal to it. Uh, I think very few people would argue that conceit, and I know that many, including myself, would take it much, much further. Well, further, why don't we go a little further since you brought that up? Is it, um, is it simply gastronomical or is it other, other as well? No, I mean, it's, there's so many elements of it, but, um, you know, I... I make in quite a few cups a day, actually. Um, I probably prepare at least four or five cups a day. And certainly, I don't actually finish any of those. That's quite rare. You know, to start with is the entire process of preparing coffee um, that I like and is, is part of that ritual. And so, you know, you, you start with that. Because I work at home, um, it's often an excuse to get up from my desk and to, you know, go in the kitchen and make coffee and, you know, it starts there, um, and it, you know it ends at the taste. But it's just so much more than that. The, the simple fact of being, you know, a beverage or a caffeinated beverage. Of course, the caffeine is a really important part of coffee's historical importance and why it is the center of, you know, many many great things. It kind of help drive, you know, uh, in, you know, kept you awake or inspiration, whatever. I mean, there's so many parts to it. Um, uh, so, in other words, you're not like um, Flaubert with his um, 40 cups per day. No, not fully, but I, I do get a, a fair amount. And when I was working on the book in Ethiopia, um, I, I was drinking a lot of coffee and, you know, I, you know, you're, and, and every night you're hard of a hard time going to sleep. You're so wound up on the caffeine and, and of course everything you've been doing and seeing and talking about and experiencing, but there's endless cups of coffee, you know, in Ethiopia, it's such a social drink. I mean, this is one of the things that I, I clearly saw the first time I went um, compared to many modern coffee shops today is that coffee is hundred percent social drink. You know, coffee is not uh, drunk alone. Uh, it's usually the people and second meetings um, always have coffee. And so, you you know, when you're there, you're, you're, you tend to 
drink a lot because you're with you're a very social culture and with a lot of people. Um, and that's that's something that I really actually appreciated was this this social element of coffee. And if you compare it to going into many cafes today and it's just quiet and everybody's staring at their screens um, and you make, you know, too much noise, people kind of glare at you. Um, you know, that's a very different element um, than I saw in Ethiopia, but also th- that social element of of coffee drinking and cafes and coffee houses. I mean, that is where it began. Um, you know, the original coffee house was a very social place, a very noisy place. It wasn't an extension of an office by any stretch of the imagination. And those first uh, coffee houses were in the early 1500s, weren't they? Uh, you say in your book they began in Aden and in Mecca. Yeah, and then they started um, spreading up around, you know, in Cairo and Damascus and Baghdad and Istanbul. I think the first one in Istanbul was around 1555. Um, you know, at, at that time, restaurants, you know, didn't really exist. Um, and they were places where people could go and, and socialize. And this was the beginning of coffee's kind of popularity. Um, and they they spread quite quickly, you know. In Istanbul, there was something like 600 coffee houses within simply two decades. Um, they they spread to Europe uh, quite quickly, and and in England, for instance, they they were a great um, option instead of the pub, you know, the, the the for 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 many reasons. But one is, you know, with ale, it just kind of dulled your intellect, um, where coffee had the opposite effect you know it made you smarter and brighter and sharper and wittier and you know the, the, the great english coffee houses um with people like you know milton and boswell and samuel johnson and and you know all these these great poets and politicians they, they met and they gathered in these coffee houses and you know that that it was this place to be but the coffee itself that that caffeine you know made them somehow brighter which the, you know the pub next door kind of made you duller it's an interesting contrast, and I believe that that was the big birth of Lloyd's in London. Lloyd's was first a coffee house, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah, the, the, you know the the coffee houses that they, they were um, uh, were the center. I mean, they they started many things. I, a lot of you know newspapers began there, or, or a lot of things kind of began. People kind of clustered around these coffee houses, and we are talking about how coffee spread. But your book explains to us how, where coffee comes from and the things that we don't know about the beginning of coffee, Ethiopia and the cloud forest. Please tell us a little about that. Um, certainly the, the center of origin and diversity, as they say, um, is the cloud forest of, of Ethiopia. So basically, just the back of one small step, there's basically two widely um, cultivated uh, species of coffee, Arabica, which is what we're talking about today, and Robusta, which is a, a much more tropical thing. So talking about fine coffee and good coffee, we're talking about Arabica. So the the center of origin diversity of Arabica coffee is in these cloud forests of Ethiopia, predominantly in the southwest of the country, a couple hundred miles from Addis Ababa. 
Um, and today, the core of the wild coffee forest kind of fall within this region known as Kaffa. And so this is an isolated region um, of valleys and dense forests and kind of hamlets. The people are subsistence farmers um, by and large. Um, they they forage for coffee in the wild. They grow it in their gardens. You know, as I write, they buy it, they sell it, they, they hoard until the prices go up. Um, and in the meantime, they're drinking a, a lot of coffee. And it for the people in the highlands, where, where it does grow wild, it's really in, in Kafe, it's, it's 100% of the population is kind of um, gets its main source of income from coffee. So this is the, the, the origin, but this still today is a real Eden of coffee. It's, you know, still grows in the wild. People still forage for it. Um, and it's, as I argue in the book, not only the source of coffee as a plan, but it's the world's original coffee culture. And I think uh, that you you mentioned that in Ethiopia, coffee is called, this is our bread. Coffee is our bread. Well, I mean, it's certainly there all the time. Um, and it, it's just so much of a part of life. Um, and Kaffa and this area where it grows wild is 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 an extreme version of that. I mean, they're, they're drinking, you know, eight or nine cups a day. Uh, they start giving it to kids as soon as they start walking. Um, in the, the coffee is is just always present. Um, you know, if you if you smell or you hear it being prepared in this kind of elaborate process where they roast the beans. First, um, you can simply go in and there'll always be a cup for you. I mean, there's, they're always preparing extra. Um, you know, again, it's, it's, at its heart, it's, it's a social, really important element. You know, it's really the glue that holds together a really large and diverse country. And as I said, it's, it's an extreme version of that is in this place where it, it, it does grow wild in the forest also. I have... Uh a rather pedestrian question to bring up, which is people uh, are worried about drinking too much caffeine in the course of a day. It's the way you're describing Ethiopians that does not enter into the question. People in the West think, oh, caffeine will have a very bad effect on my health. Uh, That does not sound like uh, the thinking of Ethiopians. So which is true? Um, in this in this area in Kaffa that I'm describing, where the the, the wild the coffee grows in the cloud forest, and this is a really you know poor area. You know, there's uh, if you live outside of the capital Bunga, you know, there's uh, no electricity and no, no running water. I mean, the, the, I think a lot of people have other issues to deal with um, health-wise, maybe more pressing than too much caffeine. Um, I, I, I get asked that question all the time, but nobody, when I was there, seemed to, you know, <laughs> think anything of it. It's, it's just part of, you know, their daily life and the pleasure and the importance of the, these small little cups of coffee that they're, that they're drinking um, is absolutely uh, fundamental. I was um, also informed when I was growing up that if I drank coffee, it would stunt my growth. Have you ever heard that? I, I have to say that I did, therefore did not drink any coffee, and I am five feet tall. Uh, I, 
I have heard that, but but I didn't I didn't come up on that um, in, from the scientific community when I was working on my book. But I, I can remember hearing that also um, when I, when I was growing up. Where did that come from? I don't know. Not not from Ethiopia, correct? I don't know. I I don't think so. No. Well, the next thing I wonder if you could talk a little about is the cloud forest, the coffee, Kafia uh, Arabica, is misnamed. How did that happen? Arabica means from Arabia, and indeed, um, it was misnamed. Uh, that goes back. Uh, to the 1730s, um, there was the the great Carlos Linnaeus, um, uh, at that time was a young Swedish botanist, um, still unknown. And he was in Amsterdam and he, he went to visit uh, somewhere a state about 30 kilometers, about 20 miles or so outside of Amsterdam called Hartekamp, um, where the owner um, had this incredible um, summer place and he had, had built four uh, greenhouses for plants from all over the world. And he had this incredible library, research library, and a world-class herbarium with thousands of these dried specimens. And um, Linnaeus at that time was was working on a system of, of classifying plants. Um, and and Clifford was very impressed by, by him, and he offered him a job. Um, and part of the job was to not only take care of the garden, but was to um, uh, catalog the collection to, play, to, to prepare a record of its contents. And this task was really interesting for Linnaeus. Um, and he, so he started working on the living um, and the dried plants, and, and among the dried plants was coffee. And um, so when Linnaeus was looking at it, he rejected its previous classification, which was a laurel, and he made a new uh, genus for it, which was caffea. Um, he he left um, Holland and went back to Sweden and he continued to work on his system of, of classifying um, plants and, and then animals and um, later kind of refined his, his classification. Um, and at that time, it was believed that coffee was coming from Arabia and he thought the same. And so when he uh, gave it its official binominal name, um, he named it Cafea Arabica, which means from Arabia. And this. Why did he believe that? Well, at, at that point, um, very few historical documents um, pointed towards coffee source across the Red Sea. Um, Yemen. Uh, was and its port of Mocha for you know for 200 years was the had a monopoly basically on selling coffee. You know, Yemen was the first place to cultivate coffee on a commercial scale, and and this and Arabia was also this. I'm sorry. They got the plants from Ethiopia. Yemen was the source of coffee's global spread. Um, so it it. Even if it didn't originate in, in Arabia, uh, it had played an, an incredibly important role in um, cultivated coffee. So essentially for two centuries, it had a near monopoly on selling the beans, but it, it just became too popular not to spread. Um, and kind of by 1720 um, is when it peaked. And within three decades, 
uh, it was already growing on five continents. It, you know, it, Arabica grows easily and it spreads rapidly and it's uniform and stable and, and in the right conditions, it absolutely thrives. Um, you know, to, today it, it's cultivated in around 40 countries or so that kind of stretch around the equator, kind of roughly between the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn. And if you kind of a lot for, you know, nuances and in, in, uh, in, the way that you're producing it and, and so on and, and certain terroir. I mean, it's pretty familiar, you know, a cup of, a, you know, Arabica that's grown in Guatemala, you know, tastes generally speaking here, quite similar to a cup from Kenya or from Tanzania, if it's, you know, dried and roasted and brewed in, in the same manner. Um, this, there is a, there is a difference between the taste of Robusta and the taste of Arabica. Exactly. So Robusta is, as I said, there are two main kinds of coffee, and um, Arabica is, you know, it's finer and it's it's just a much higher flavor. Um, Robusta is, you know, less mild and you know, in it's stronger. It's got a higher caffeine level, but it has this kind of burnt rubberish um, kind of flavor to it. It's tropical. Um, so it needs, you know, grows much lower elevation. Um, but it's, you know, as I said, when we talk about fine coffee, we're talking about Arabica, and it's still a majority of coffee that's grown. Um, Robusta is increasing, but uh, Arabica is still a majority of, of coffee produced. Where did Robusta originate? Uh, well, there's uh, a lot of it is around uh, Central Africa, somewhere in Uganda. There's some different kind of patches of it, um, but it, mm-hmm. it's it's more of a kind of tropical African plant. Although there's a lot, you know, it it was taken out of Africa and planted um, in Indonesia, for instance. Uh, they grow a lot of it in in Vietnam today. Um, it. it, it it, this past year was about 40% of the global coffee was Robusta. And uh, the applic- the uses for Robusta are somewhat different industrially. Well, it, just, it has a lot, it's a lot higher caffeine and it's a lot um, uh, less expensive to produce. Uh, so you... Or, you know, they're using a lot of the caffeine in, in sodas and so on, but also it's it uses in blend. And I think what we're seeing is that it's being blended more and more and more into or with Arabica. So the pure Arabica, you know, coffee used to generally be pure Arabica, but I think now you're getting in the supermarket lots of blends and they're, they're putting some of this into it little by little. It seems to be increasing. As a consumer of coffee, what is it that people don't know that they should know about the worldwide crop, about well, anything? I think that, uh, well, there's two things I think that, uh, that uh, you know, again, hopefully people get from this book. Um, one is your question earlier about the source and about its, about its origins and looking at this original coffee culture. Um, for me, that was... You know, to start with is is that it's from Ethiopia and, you know, to tell that story out there um, about the forest and so on. But second is the idea that, you know, that this was the original coffee culture Um, for for me. um, it, It never really made sense 
that you know it normally it's the Turks or the Arabs that tend to get credit for developing or in, inventing coffee. Um, where for me it it seemed like the people that you know those living in around the forest who grew it were were undoubtedly the first to prepare it. You know the, these are forest people. You know that they, they use or utilize every item in the forest, um, including including coffee. You know these beautiful bright red, very tempting fruits that when you you know take them in your mouth they have kind of a little sweetness to them. And you have these two seeds or these two beans, um, and you have this kind of energizing effect from the caffeine. Um, the, the, the logical thing for me is that it, it began there. Um, and so in the forest, these wild forests, I asked a lot of questions about trying to get to that source um, and the, the old stories about where coffee kind of came from. And one thing that I found that was really interesting is that, you know, it probably began as a food. You know, people eating the these coffee fruit, these we'll call cherries, these red uh, ripe coffee fruits um and eventually you know it came to the beans and eventually roasting the beans you know somebody said to me you know eventually we put everything on the fire and as soon as you start roasting the coffee beans you're eventually going to make kind of a drink out of it but the the other point that goes with that is that probably the first drink um that came from the coffee tree was actually an infusion from the coffee leaves you know they still make this kind of you know to saying with dried coffee leaves it's long been popular it's you know you take you you have to think that you have these ripe coffee beans on the tree for say a month a year but you have the leaves all year round and they dry them and then they they can kind of toast them in the pan and they taste for me a little bit like a a real light puer they're kind of earthy flavor with this natural sweetness sorry to interrupt so in other words coffee is really uh a product of a primary environment. It would be uh, maybe the high, the high mountain version of Amazonian uh, subsistence. Is growing on trees. We ha- we live yeah, near mean, the trees. Yes, we the, eat it. You know, people live on forest. They they so utilize you know, what they have. I mean, it? just surviving takes an incredible amount of energy and and, and effort. And you know, you're you're trying things, um, you know, over many many you know centuries and developing ways to utilize these forest products. You know, coffee is simply one. Uh, plant in the in, in the forest and this is something that for me that was really interesting to see um being in the forest was that you know cultivated coffee um is there because it's meant to be there you know it's planted you know it it, it produces fruit because it's supposed to produce fruit in the forest the wild coffee is there because it survived you know, there's a lot of plants that want that space, you know, that, that wants that light and those nutrients. But that coffee tree that you're seeing, it's there because it won that place in the forest. You know, it's it's a it's there because it survived. Um, and. And and it has many, you know, it has various roles. So you see these old coffee trees that they're, they're, they tend to be quite skinny. They grow upwards towards light. Um, they're only producing enough 
coffee cherries to simply perpetuate the species. I mean, the energy goes into survival. So they, they tend to be covered in moss and they, they have a role. So you, you, you have these trees covered in this, you know, kind of beardy moss that, you know, it, 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 basically the trees get wet, it, it attracts some dirt, eventually get mosses and so on. And, you know, critters live in that moss. You know, it, it, it's, um, it's a host for you know, pollinators and for insects and so on. I mean, it has its role as it lives under this, you know, it's under the main canopy. It's a, it's a second tier tree, but it definitely has its role uh, in the forest. And this is another element to, to me that I think people don't really understand is that, you know, coffee in this natural self produces actually quite little. And it's a, it's a heavily shaded tree. It does not live in the, in the, in the open. In other, in other words, the tree itself is a member of a community and it contributes lots to the forest community. It isn't simply there for people to pick the berries. Absolutely. These are, these are very, very rich, biodiverse And it's uh, elevated, forests. isn't it? Arabica is a very sensitive plant that kind of grows within a relatively small band um, elevation and so yeah these are highlands so these these are highland cloud forests i'm curious to know in the the time that you spent researching this book what was some something or a few things that really surprised you as you were learning about coffee well within the forest um, this idea that the coffee forest is just chaos and there's just trees everywhere and, uh, you know, the trees are bent down um, from people picking them, but also from the animals. You know, the, these ripe fruits are um, beloved by, uh, you know, baboons, certain oh. monkeys um, and lots of birds. Um, and th these are a big threat or, uh, you know, for people that are collecting the fruits, uh, uh, um, competition, if you want to call it that. But also these animals are responsible for sowing um, the seeds around the forest. So certain certain birds in particular, they pick them up and they, they, they carry the fruits and they eat it and they, they drop the seed and, you know, new trees sprout up around. Uh, I'm thinking now about coffee that is poured into a paper cup and covered with a plastic lid. Can you talk a little about how the cloud canopy tree is now somewhere so far from its original ambiance? Yeah, it, it's... It has changed, but I guess what was interesting, though, is that in its wild state, coffee is extremely similar to cultivated coffee. I think, in fact, I think it's one of the products, I would say, that is the most similar to the, you know, wildly commercial cultivated um, crop. You know, you take like carrots or something. I mean, they're unrecognizable from what we're getting now. Um while that we're drinking coffee differently is interesting that it remains so similar you know so you go into this cloud forest and the actual coffee beans that you're or the the coffee fruit you're collecting are quite similar it's the trees that are different as i said earlier they're skinny they grow upwards towards the light and they're producing very very little um 
but the the cherries, the coffee cherries themselves, are surprisingly similar. Now, this is uh, a primary uh, raw material grown in a certain part of the world and consumed in another part of the world. The Ethiopians actually drink this primary resource. Yes, and it, it, this is certain, this is one thing that, that's very different is that, you know, Kenya, for instance, it consumes only about three percent of its own coffee. Um, I think Colombia is around eighty-six percent of its coffee is being exported. Ethiopia is different. Ethiopia is consuming over half of its production, and this is a country. This is one of the biggest producers in the world. Um, they they consume a lot of it. Now, this idea that it is by and large produced in you know poor countries and exported into richer ones um, is quite different than for instance rice or wheat and this is one of the reasons why the, the, they were called uh, it's called an orphan crop so there was often little invested into um, the research and development of it, where you take rice, for instance, that is you know grown and consumed in, say, Japan or China and in many countries, they were growing it and consuming it, and they had the money or the 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 resources uh, to you know, do lots of research and seed and so on. Coffee was very different, you know. It it didn't. There's not that kind of central body or there until recently there wasn't a kind of a big central body really there's no monsanto for coffee um, another thing is that there's really no market for for the seeds you know a farmer will simply take um the, you know the seeds from uh, the best producing trees and kind of replant those um there's another reason but it's it's very different um been neglected for a long time and this is something that the scientific community is you know uh, very much aware of and that many people say to you we're 20 years too late i mean it, this is something that you know trying to fight um you know climate change and certain diseases now they say well you know we, i wish we would have done this two decades ago but we didn't have that central organization to kind of help coordinate it why was there no central organization? Well, it was because of this. I mean, it was largely, you know, being produced in countries um, than other resources. And the big ones like Brazil and Colombia tended to do a lot of the research for their own um, coffee sectors. So you had a lot of smaller countries that didn't really have the resources um, for that. So let's talk about Brazil for a moment. How much of the coffee production is consumed by Brazilians? Uh, that I'm not sure, I, I, that I, I, I don't know. Um, but you know, Brazil is the world's largest producer of coffee and the world's largest producer of Arabica. It is by far the, the biggest producer of, of, of coffee. And it's also one of the areas, one of the countries that is particularly threatened um, by climate change. You know, the, the most recent or some of the most recent studies basically have said that uh, an increase of 2 to 2.5 degrees Celsius would would trim perhaps by 50 percent the land suitable for growing coffee by 2050. Now, Brazil, that basically produces half of the world's Arabica and about a third of the total coffee, um, a rise of three degrees Celsius would cut, um, studies show, about 
two-thirds of the available growing land in the main or in the principal growing regions of, of the country. Um, it's a very big issue. And this is simultaneously going on with demand, which is growing like crazy. So where is Yes, um, and you know, old um, what they call old consumers, Are there new so consumers in the U.S. It's been a long time producing, um, or just consuming country. Uh, it's increasing. You know, the millennials are drinking more coffee than their parents, are drinking earlier than the parents, and then drinking better coffee. Um, and then you have all these newer countries. You know, uh, India, for instance, uh, is you know, coffee is booming in India. Um, it's huge. Yeah, it's kind of growing all over the world. So demand is um, increasing. Um, at the same time when the earth is really saying, you know, slow down, it, basically demand is saying by 2030, production will have to increase by one third. Or, or, or if you look at it this way, it has to increase by the same amount that Brazil is producing today. That's it's a huge, it's a huge uh, increase. So r rather than decreasing production, which is really what, you know, we need to do, because when, when you... Decrease in production, um, but by that I mean not just some less planting, but if you start producing coffee, for instance, with more shade, a lot of more shade-grown coffee, um, you start decreasing the yields. So if if a farmer switches to you know producing coffee under heavy shade, maybe organic farming, maybe they're going to lose thirty percent um, of what they're farming now. So the you know they, they it looks like it it looks like there are real problems coming down the road because the heat global heating global warming will affect coffee production and uh monocultures are always vulnerable and that's the character of, of yes. South and Arabica in particular is really vulnerable because it's genetically impoverished. One, because of its history, how it's spread. And second, it's self-pollinating. I, um, I wonder if you could explain what you mean by self-pollinating and non-self-pollinating. Um, yes. Robusta um, needs another point. Let me back up here. Um, Self-pollinating basically is that it can reproduce itself. Uh, they think it's not exactly known, but maybe 90% of the time, something like that, um, it 95% maybe. Um, robusta is different. It needs to be cross-pollinated. And when you cross-pollinate, uh, you get an almost unlimited number of kind of what they call genotypes. And this means that almost every tree is a little bit different. So basically the trees that, you know, can succeed and adapt to certain changes, survive and pass on those traits. Um, Arabica being, you know, self-pollinating is much more sensitive um, and much less able to withstand, you know, whether it's the heat or certain diseases that come through. They they could all just die. In other words, they cannot uh, benefit from um, traits that would exist in certain uh, certain plants, but not in others. Yes.
I mean, I mean, this for for any species, this is genetic. You know, diversity is absolutely fundamental in in survival. What do you think the approaches to this problem? How successful are they? Well, this so it's it's not only uh, simply a matter of of heat because the climate change is making um, a disease called coffee leaf rust. Um, is is aggravating. It's making it um, uh, spread faster and quicker. And this this rust is really one of the biggest threats for Arabica. Um, it's been around for you know last handful of decades. Um, and you know in Latin America, which produces about eighty five percent of of the Arabica, um, this is a really big issue. It's it's not a uh, something that can be um cured it it can be dealt with but it's it's not going to go away um and you know part of dealing with that is you know n- not monocultural farming but you know more for instance if you farm with a lot of shade trees closer to what you get you know in the original forest of Ethiopia it can help a bit with the with the increase of heat, but can also perhaps help a little bit with the with the coffee rusting. And this kind of monoculture that you kind of mentioned is always more susceptible to to problems. I'm wondering if increasing the cost of coffee at the consumer level would have any effect. Well, if you one of the big issues, is, as I mentioned earlier, is that if you if a farmer is suddenly plants a lot of trees and is growing, you know, really heavy shade grown coffee, maybe the production is going to go down 20, 30%. And that farmer needs a way to make up that money. You just can't say to a farmer, you know, plant all these trees, you're going to, you're going to lose 30% of your yield. Um, but that's how it is. You have to offer that farmer a way to make up that 30%. Um, but there, there's no system at the moment to, you know, to offer that. I mean, I, obviously, I think in the future, I think that there, there could be or needs to be a way to somehow some premium for much more environmentally friendly coffees. Um, I think people would, would pay. I mean, we, we don't want to pay more than for our coffee than, than we have to. Um, but there's going to have to be some hard decisions made. Um, some sort of, you know, in, in the past, it's, it's been the past, you know, say 10 years, people said, well, Brazil can just make it up. But, you know, Brazil is having their own issues with drought um, and, and the heat. And it has to be dealt with. But as I said, there was no major cent- central organization 20 years ago saying, well, we're going to deal with this in the future. Let, let's do this. And this is something that's now come about. There's a couple of agencies now that have kind of uh, taking, trying to take control and trying to get funding from the industry, from companies like Starbucks or, um, you know, large companies that, you know, that their livelihood is in coffee to try to deal with this. One, you know, issue of coffee is that um, it takes a number of generations, you know, when you say you have a, a new plant that is maybe a little bit more um, stronger against a certain disease or, or something, it, it takes three or four years for each generation to grow before, and it, it takes you, you know, a handful of generations of a tree before you can know um, if it's successful or not. And so you're talking, you know, in some cases, you know, 15, 20 years before you can get these kind of new plants out to a farmer. And in, and in today's scenario, like a lot of science will say, it just is not going to not gonna work. 
Um, and so science is coming in now, um, sequencing the genome and so on to try to help speed up this process a little bit, making certain choices um, for the scientific community a little bit easier. But it's, it's, as I said, a lot of people say we should have done this 20 years ago and we should have been where we are right now 20 years ago. You know, this is, it's kind of overtaken a little bit. Um, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty severe. I mean, the problems that are happening in a lot of countries, you know, with, with uh, Arabica. Yeah. Here are two things that occur to me. The first thing is people are paying more for coffee because people are buying, as you say, better quality coffee, uh, special. The, the, the definition of coffee as being special has just triumphed. And then the other thing is, like many other crops, uh, basic food crops, rice and corn, uh, global crops. Uh, can, we can't just say now grow twice as much as you have been growing on your farm. Well, the the, the largest growing sector of the coffee industry is the specialty coffee industry. You know, people are drinking better coffee, which is great. Everybody wants the best coffee, um, and people are paying a lot more for the, the cups of coffee. But actually, on the you know on the commodities market, the the, the price of coffee is actually quite low. Um, I mean, certainly there's a famous $6 cups of coffee now, but that, that's not reflected in, you know, many farms. Yurga Chefe is probably the most famous coffee producing area in Ethiopia. Some of the most expensive coffees, some of the, the most celebrated coffees in the world are coming out of Yurga Chefe. And you go to Yurga Chefe and it's, it's just as impoverished um, as, as anywhere. And the farmers are making almost nothing. Um, you know, the, the money is, it doesn't really trickle down so well. Um, Isn't this the thing that has to change? Uh, I don't know. It, I mean, it seems that it has to be some some big, so some large and some difficult decisions made, uh, you know, to help finance um, some of this and to, to kind of make it more feasible to alter kind of a, a, a style of farming. How that's going to come out, I don't know. I mean, if, if the major companies, um, you know, say well, we're going to offer this premium and put it towards that, you know, Nestle. Uh, controls 40 some percent of the global coffee market and the is another company called JEB that controls almost an equal amount of it. I mean, it's two companies that are controlling <laughs> almost the entire world's coffee market. Um, you know, it, it's up to, and then Starbucks, it's up to some big companies to, I would say, step in because it's not really a governmental agency that's there that's going to instigate it or police it. Uh, so the, the, the fact that it's been uh, the, the problems involved with coffee production are always being dealt with nationally but not internationally uh, research and uh, FAO you would think the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization would be playing a role in this do they have a role in it um, well they certainly they were you know they, they, they were the ones behind you know in the middle of them 20th century in the, in the 1940s, they basically had said, you know, coffee is the world's second largest commodity at that point, yet we know almost nothing about it in the wild. And they, uh, the FAO, they sponsored um, a couple of trips into Ethiopia, into the wild forest um, to try to collect as much of that, um, of, of the wild and well, actually got from all over Ethiopia. But they were the ones in the instigated these, these major um, expeditions of gathering uh, at that time. Was that the gathering expedition of Frederick uh, Meyer? Right. There, there was a, f a couple in there. And those, you know, the, the resources that they gathered, they're still using in breeding purposes. I mean, it, 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 
they really didn't know anything about it, um, and they continued to um, use the, the resources gathered, you know, back um, 50, 60 years ago. So, so actually, there was research, but it's just old, and and it has has not been ongoing. Yeah, they, and and they they helped. But it, it, it tends to be national, um, on, on the national level, you know, they, they, there was some help um, in some uh, countries, in some areas, and they established in Costa Rica, um, you know, uh, there was a major international, Encatia uh, was established center, but largely it's, you know, Brazil has its national industry and does its research for Brazilian farmers, Colombia handles Colombia. Um, but where there used to be, you know, the every coast of these countries, some of these countries, you know, especially after uh, independence, um, uh, th there was, you know, the, the, not that much money for the research and development um, in some of these going to be smaller countries. So that is part of the problem that the resources uh, in the producing countries are not there. Right. But it, even even today, you know, scientists, you know, some scientists said to me, you know, it's only a matter of numbers. You know, you, you develop a new, um, you know, strain of rice and, and you, you have a lot of, there's a lot of funding. But with coffee, I mean, is you, who, who's going to give it to you? I would like to keep on talking about coffee for another few hours, but we are going to instead, uh, I'd like to ask you, what lays ahead beyond coffee for you? Do you have a new project you're working on? Not yet. I mean, it. I uh, my 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 last book was about tea, and um, so we Darjeeling tea, and that that book, you know, was a basically about a plant that wasn't from a place and was smuggled out and planted elsewhere and it found its perfect home and the story about, you know, why it's there and how it got there and the culture that developed around it and the problems today. Um, and so when I was working on that, I thought a lot about things in their origin, which is what led to the coffee book, because this, the, the, this book is in many ways the opposite story. It's, it's about the plant looking at it in its natural home um, in, in Ethiopia. Um, and so, you know, looking at, plant, at tea and then at coffee, I mean, it's hard for me not to also think about um, the story of chocolate or, or cacao. I think as, you know, as soon as I can find an interesting way to tell that story, uh, it's something I would love to do. 